Welcome back. So now we're moving on to part two of uh, working on a lease and lease negotiations and those types of things. So in part one, we determined our site. We were working with a client and they had a specific use. And they needed a location. And so we worked on those parameters to help them find a location. So now that we've sourced that, we're going to move on to the second part, which is an LOI and lease negotiations. So Ryan, what is an LOI? Well, a letter of intent, it's a short for letter of intent, and it's the avenue in which you start talking on paper when you want to negotiate a lease. There's so many items that might not come to mind at first when you're saying, I'm looking to lease a space, but you have to get a lot of these points determined beforehand. And if you don't, it, it can make the kill the deal in the last second because of, oh, reading the lease it was like well i didn't know i was responsible for whatever so it's it's a good way to negotiate terms of a lease and then once you get to that agreement you transport or incorporate all those terms from the agreed to letter of intent right. to the lease which will be a longer and longer document with more details and it's actually enforceable because Letters of intent are generally non-binding. It's just basically talking on paper. Yeah, the way that I've kind of described it to clients before, it's just basically a paper negotiation. So you're laying out the different aspects of things and you go back and forth. And once both you and the landlord or often their attorney have determined what the things are, then from there it moves on to the lease. And those documents then get memorialized in the lease itself. And then again, oftentimes there's more negotiation that goes on, but the LOI roughs out the terms for what the lease will be constructed from. Exactly. And it'll incorporate some basic things where it's the address, the description of the space, the suite number unit, if it's a multi-tenant building, the square footage, um, whether it's going to be usable or rentable square footage that usually I would say comes up most often in multi-tenant offices, because that's just something you see more often than that. But if it's say retail, industrial, whatever, uh, or a standalone office building, it's probably going to be uh, rentable square foot, or I'm sorry, the usable square footage is going to be the same, same as the rentable because you're not going to have all those common what is the difference there? What What is the usable versus rentable? So the usable is the space that is actually the footprint of where you lease. But rentable takes into account the common areas like a lobby. There's a core factor to buildings that you are build upon some of the square footage that is not what you physically occupy. So elevators, bathrooms right. in a, in a high rise type thing and that type of yeah, thing. Lobbies, right. uh, corridors, I mean, things like that, that are, you know, you have the same enjoyment and use of those spaces. So the way your rent's structured, you're going to pay for it. And the way to do that uh, fairly is they determine the core factor on the building. And it's basically a multiple to the, square footage in which you actually occupy in that particular unit. I mean, if it's just none of that involved, then it's 
going to be based on the space that you physically occupy. Right. Okay. Um, you know, it's going another point that's going to be in a letter of intent is the base rental rate and the rent schedule. Uh, the base rental rate can be, you know, even if it's a gross lease, that's going to be the base of the rent. Uh, and it'll speak to that, how that uh, is structured. But if it's a triple net lease, you're going to have two items where you have, all right, let's say the base rents 12 bucks a foot, your triple net charges are four and you'd have two different places for that where you outline it. And, you know, in the commercial arena, uh, everything is quoted on an annual basis because it's just the easiest way to compare because if you do the, the the square if you do it the monthly basis it's just not it, it it's not the common practice and also if you're a, a new new agent it'll be a dead giveaway that you're a net a new agent if you don't quote it in an annual basis right so the pricing is per square foot annually correct um, we that kind of touched on the leasing structure and that can vary in various types of asset classes and what is common and expected. Um, yeah. So the two main types are triple net, as we kind of mentioned in the last part is a triple net or a gross lease. So what are the main differences of that? Well, a gross lease, is just one number all in and it doesn't matter. What you're it, paying is what you're paying. Yeah. Other than possibly some utilities and things like that. Right. So like full service gross, I mean, that's going to be one of those office towers where right. they can't separately meet or anything. It's just, it, everything is going to be included. Right. Um, and that's going to probably be most seen in the office arena more than anything else. Cause uh, you know, the, the retail and the industrial almost always going to be a triple net lease unless it's in kind of an area or the tenant base is not going to be as sophisticated and the landlords just make it easy type of thing. Yeah. I think in, in some ways it maybe depends on, you know, cause one of the things that happens on a triple net lease is you have to reconcile those other expenses and then pass those through to the tenant. So how does that structure? And in some cases, maybe it's just easier to figure out what that number is and bake it in. Right to the overall amount so that people know, Hey, if this is going to be $2,000 a month and it's $2,000 a month. And I don't have any other right. expenses over and above that at the end of the year, I don't have to go back and pay out whatever amount it might be. Yeah. Cause it, perfect example is right now there's a grocery anchored shopping center that um, got under contract and in due diligence and the way that those triple net charges, the, which are the property taxes, property insurance, and the common area maintenance. Um, I mean, when the bill is incurred for the insurance and when you have a final tally of the common area maintenance, that could be a different year. It could be the following, I mean, the taxes in most of the parishes are due at the end of the year. So those bigger, more complicated properties, the, how those charges are reconciled can complicate things, but more often than not, you're going to have an estimation of what that is. And unless it's a national tenant, they're probably just going to go off the estimation and pay that. And 
it's important to make sure your clients know that with a fluctuation in those expenses, there can be a fluctuation in, in what they have to pay from year to year. I was going to say, so particularly like what we're dealing with in this market right now with property insurance, there can be a huge yeah. variability from one year to the next year and what those carrying costs are going to be for your business. You know, if, if the landlord is, has experience in doubling or tripling in some cases of his insurance, then virtually then, every landlord I know has right. doubled at least. Right. And so in a triple net lease, those, that expense will be passed through to the tenant. Uh, provided the landlord, if there's not a yeah ceiling that had been established. Yeah, because sometimes you can negotiate. You know, and you can only increase it by so much per year. I mean, important thing. To, important thing to discuss now. Is yeah, that I was going to say important thing to remember that everything's negotiable, and the more that you do on the front end, the more your client has uh, you know understanding for the future, and things don't get you know. They can control for the variabilities that might be going on. Yeah, the unforeseen, because there are some leases negotiated a couple of years ago where I'm happy that uh, some of the expenses we were able to put a cap on, because if not, it would have killed the landlord with some of these things, that, namely the insurance. Um, but yeah, it, it's it, if you can put it into your letter of intent, and ask for it as long as you're not asking for too much. I would say try to try to negotiate points like that. Sure. And one of the things you would just say, like they can increase by no more than a certain percentage. You right. can make these requests, you know. Yeah. And that's the same thing with like an option. Yeah. On it. Exactly. Uh, you know, another item that's pretty basic is you know the security deposit. Uh, with some other basic things. All right. Yeah, I think that was like the last of the basic things and everything else we have to cover has a little bit of nuance to it as every deal has its nuances. Um, tenant improvements. That's, you know, it's safe to say that virtually no space that your tenant is going to want to lease is going to be turnkey. Right. So it all comes down to who is going to do those tenant improvements. How is that fee or cost going to be treated? Right. And, you know, it depends on the terms and length of the lease more often. Generally speaking, if your tenant is going to do it and they're not going to get a tenant improvement allowance, say it's a mom and pop, which probably more people are going to deal with a mom and pop landlord than a big institutional REIT type landlord where mm -hmm. tenant improvements are more likely to happen. Say you want 1,500 square feet of a space, you need to do a few thousand dollars worth of improvements to make it ready for your particular commerce, that, to be in commerce for your use. Right. Um, you know, one way to ask would be, you know, give me three months of free rent and it'll be a, a no cost to you or, Give me this many months of free rent, and then a few months where it's like half rent or you stair step it up and you have a longer term. So it's more attractive for them. But if, you know, there's tenant improvement allowance, then you just 
have that baked into the rent where you pay it's amortized over the course of the lease. So there's, there's a million ways to skin that cat. It just kind of depends on the strength of the tenant, mm-hmm. what the landlord preference is, how bad do they want that tenant? Right. Uh, the credit worthiness is always a factor because you don't want to spend crazy amount of money on a build out and then your tenant flops within a month or never pays any rent. <laughs> that is, you know, that's been an unfortunate thing that I've seen where it I mean, wasn't even necessarily the landlord, but the tenant themselves may have, and I've seen it a couple of times in sort of the, the restaurant world where they spent a ton of money building the place out, but didn't actually have the capital for operations because, you know, restaurants can take a couple of years. They usually figure the first couple of years, the most tenuous, but by three years, maybe they've, they already have enough groundwork that's established in clientele. So they're successful. But if you drop a million dollars, building out a space and which is easy to do in some places which is for a restaurant is yeah. like we were talking about if you if you go into a, a space that's not built out for a restaurant and you gotta you know you're spending five hundred thousand dollars just to build out a kitchen probably you know with the vent hood and everything else in yeah so if you don't have cash set aside to run your business for you know 18 months over and above that then you could very quickly get into a very difficult situation yeah restaurant Working with restaurants, I I, I say this all the time, just because you're told you make the best potato salad at the barbecue doesn't mean that you can run a restaurant. And it's always amazing that there's some qualifying questions that you can ask restaurant prospects to to determine relatively quickly. If you want to know if they've been in the business, ever opened up a restaurant, uh, ran a restaurant, Sure. Because, I mean, you know, if you don't have the experience or you're not hiring the people and to run it and know what they're doing, you're not going to be a very attractive tenant to a landlord because new ventures are not as sexy as someone who's been in the business for a while and established and, you know, say, oh, yeah, I've eaten there. I know that franchise or anyway. That's another topic, but <laughs> yeah, that, I mean, that brings up a sort of an interesting point with regards to the LOI and that's kind of the other side of it. You know, if I'm on the landlord side of it, then I'm going to ask my agent, like, what's the credit worthiness of this tenant? How long have they been around? You right. know, and some of these things, like how many followers do they have now? And we look at the social media thing, if they have, if they're running a business out of their house, be like, okay, well, what does that mean? But with e-commerce, maybe, you know, maybe that means they have 5,000 people. Maybe that means they have, 10,000 people, you know, right. it could be a big difference in those. Uh, another thing that can come up is uh, contingencies to at least being the contingencies to commencement. Like if you have to get a zoning change or a permitted use, or say it's a restaurant and you, it's contingent upon getting a liquor license or something like that. I mean, obviously if you can't, get those certain contingencies met you don't want to be burdened with a lease that you can't do can't be in business so you can't pay the rent um those are things that to consider uh for the letter of intent as well yeah i actually heard about one recently on that somebody contacted me because they got into a lease um, but their entire business model was predicated on this strip center this grocery store opening up in the strip center and that hasn't been able to open up. And so as a result, there's been no traffic 
And so at this point, like he doesn't want to pay the lease and he wants to re redo it basically to make it contingent on the grocery store opening. Wow. Yeah. I know there's, we touched on co-tenancy in the, the last portion and that can be a factor with uh, occupancy. Um, sometimes right. you have some occupancy clauses in there that if the center isn't at a certain amount of occupancy, then your rent goes down to like half or, you know, is percentage rent on sales, which you're probably not going to see percentage rent on sales unless it's a national because the accounting and record keeping on that for a mom and pop might be a little bit more difficult, but the occupancy that can be a, a another thing of uh, another contingency, not only to the opening, but, you know, staying open thereafter right. as uh, part of this, part of the lease. Right. Yeah. Moving on. the, Virtually every single landlord, this is an easy one, landlord, liability insurance with landlord named as additional insured. If right. any landlords got half their, like half a brain, like that's just a given, going to have to have it. And it sure. seems like the million with uh, two million in the aggregate. It's fairly common ask. Yeah. And it's, I'm starting to see it bump up to a little bit higher coverage, but it's a nominal fee for most businesses. So if it's a mom and pop tenant that didn't know that that's something they had to have, you might want to educate them that, no, you, you're going to want to have this because you could be exposed. Sure. On a, in a bad way without it. Very true. Uh, the next item that we touched on, or we're going to touch on is signage. And that becomes probably most important to the retail type of tenants, uh, where that signage is placed, um, how big, sometimes you get charged for signage in some buildings, uh, you know, in an office building, it might only consist of having your, uh, your name engraved on a little plaque down in the lobby. So, so it just, it all depends and you just need to know what your client needs and so you know what to ask for and generally the most common type of verbiage i'll see is you know uh, signage to be provided or a rendering of it to be provided to the landlord prior uh, to it being installed so it's you know approved approval not to be unreasonably withheld or some verbiage to that effect more or less but i think that's pretty pretty basic pretty easy stuff and also something so the other thing i was going to say on that is it kind of touches on the zoning aspect as well because oftentimes that is addressed in the zoning as to whether or not you can or cannot have a sign where it has right. to be what a it certain has to size. look like yeah. certain historic areas they might have a particular look that you have to have you know there's like i've heard before that the only part of the french quarter that neon signs are allowed on is on bourbon street so you can't have these other signs and then on the LOI or whatever, like also in the style or whatever that as per zoning that's allowed yeah. in that area. Yeah. The, I remember there was a, uh, a, a tenant in a strip center that was, you know, the, let me put it this way, humble people. And they had been operating what their organization did. And they put a sign on this building without consulting any municipal authority and oh. the landlord kept on getting these uh, 
fees in, for infraction, sign infractions on the building every day. And uh, he didn't understand why he had to pay the landlord for it. <laughs> so they, you're, the tenant, if it's uh, your, your, your client's first go around of having their own space, that's something they need to be aware of that you can't just slap a sign up. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's zoning involved. Right. Uh, moving on, you know, the, the utilities, refuse disposal, janitorial, again, all comes down to whether, what type of building you're in and the type of tenant you are. Right. These uh, things could be baked in to the overall lease, or they might be separate charges that you have to cover yourself as the tenant. Yeah. A lot of shopping centers, the tenants have their own uh, dumpster. Um, that's probably not going to be the case with the office tenants where they got right. the janitorial that picks it up. It's not their problem. It, it's built in. Sure. Uh, big one dealing with it on the most recent lease negotiation that I have is the HVAC. Right. <laughs> um, you know, we're in that time of year where it's the hottest and it's hard to get an HVAC technician to respond not because they're ignoring you. It's because they have a backlog because everyone's HVAC is out and messed up. Right. So it's one of those things that you need to determine the responsibility and, you know, the responsibility for maintaining, because if it's an office building, it's probably just going to be the landlord anyway, but if it's a retail or a small office building, not an office tower where you have all of those other fees built in, Mm -hmm. uh, or industrial building, I'd say most of the industrial deals I've dealt with, I'm sure you have too, correct me if not so, but an industrial guy, you're probably going to be taking care of everything. Yeah. So I know like in some of the ones that I've worked on and one of the things we've tried to negotiate is since the person's moving into the space, they already having to deal with either the overhead or the build out or whatever it is, marketing, getting things up and running is to try to get you know, the landlord to warranty the HVAC for say the first year or something of that extent. And like try and put something like that into the LOI to have it so that like if I move into a space, I don't want to have to come out of pocket like 10 or 15 grand to replace the AC right. in the first six months. Right. You know, after that, then that becomes a whole different issue because theoretically I'm up and running and I'm generating income and I'm, I'm moved into the space. But that's definitely one of the things that we've looked at. Yeah, like the, the lease I was finishing up as I was here, the landlord is going to be replacing the HVAC because the current system is like 20 plus years old. Right. And that's one of the things that's a, an important consideration when you're looking at the space to determine how old that HVAC yeah. is, especially if your tenant is going to be responsible for it. Right. If it's 10 years old, you go, can we set aside funds right, to replace this thing? Because it's going to go. Or, you know, limit me to, okay, you're not going to replace it, but limit me up to maybe like $500,000, whatever, a, a certain amount. So if you have to come out of pocket, you know, it's going to be no more than that 500 sure. or a thousand or whatever you can negotiate. Cause it, it, it most tenants are not going to want to take on a space that the HVAC could die seconds later from them going in there and be responsible for replacing it. Right. And then, I mean, because inevitably they don't own that space. Yep. Right. So important, important thing to consider and how you treat it and how it's outlined in your letter of intent. Um, yeah. Moving on. 
the uh, the hours of operation, you know, that might be of, it depends if, you know, it's going to be open really early in the morning, say it's a restaurant that does breakfast or say you were representing a bar that's going to want to be open till the wee hours of the night. You know, you some landlords are not going to want that particular uh, crowd at that hour there in their property. So that's something that you have to consider uh, and put into the, the, the LOI. Yeah. On that side of thing, I think it's, it's very important, especially on the tenant side that, you know, and I've had people be like, well, you know, that's kind of a secondary use. Like if you're talking about yeah. the event hall kind of things, have somebody that's like, Oh, well, we're not really an event hall worth whatever this, but sometimes you're going to be open late. And it's like, no, let's <laughs> just like lay, literally lay everything out on the line. If you're going to be open until four in the morning on the weekends and you have to it's best to disclose that versus going into the space and hoping that it's going to work right. out yeah so say if it's like a mixed use center they're not going to want a bar blasting music at night and the tenants that live in the apartments or whatever on the floors above that's probably not going to jive so that's where yeah. some of these that consideration comes in it also goes back and of course touches on the zoning thing again as to what right the uses and here I know there's there was a lot of stuff in Orleans Parish with live music, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of the venues and where you can have live music is again a pretty restricted thing. But you're, you know, whatever. You can pump tunes out of a party bus. <laughs> exactly. Uh you know, coming back to it, we spoke to it on the site selection criteria was parking. That's uh, something that may be of consideration and you just have to determine the parking needs and whether or not you need to outline something in that letter of intent. Um, one of the other things that's pretty important that I guess some folks forget to, to incorporate when they're a tenant looking, they're just thinking for the immediate lease, the renewal options will with how the inflation has happened, mm -hmm. insurance, just everything is more expensive. Right. It's safe to say if you do a three or five year lease that by the time at the end of that term, everything in the world is going to cost more. And one way to, you know, protect yourself is to have an option that's clearly defined on what your rent is going to be in the future can always try to retrade doesn't mean the landlord will want to renegotiate but if you have that option already outlined up front then i look at it as a uh, insurance lot insurance policy that you know you can cap your expense of rent on that particular item yeah it theoretically helps you control what your costs are going to be going forward right and limits it but you know the they can also come back, which I've had happen a couple of times, say like, you can have these options, but it's going to be at market rate. Yeah. You know? I always say that that's not really a lease option. <laughs> it's just a, a, a right. an, an open uh, window of interpretation. But it keeps them from, I guess, not renewing with you. Yeah. I don't know. I always looked at, at market rate as might as well not have an option. Uh, maybe that's just my opinion, but if that's said in there, I would say the best way to try to safeguard yourself is 
a metric on how you would determine market rate saying maybe you know these buildings if what their comps are if you can get lease comps on a, on a commercial building not always the easiest thing to do especially if it's a multi-tenant but if you can i think the thing i see the most is if it's cpi adjusted mm-hmm. which you have no control over that and it was perfect for the tenants for the longest time when cpi was almost three percent sure. annually but that's changed right. <laughs> in the last two years um i guess if you can say a specific percentage increase or negotiate no increase or just there's a million ways to do it yeah just Oh, generally, you know, when I, when I put them into LOI, I'd say like, you know, try to go for no more than 2% a year, right. no more than 10% if it's whatever, three year lease, something like that. But sometimes they just come back. That actually made me think of something else though. And you touched on it a little bit last time, but there's different classes of office space. Right. So what does that, what does that mean? Oh, uh, different classes of office space. I think the most, I think when people say class A office, they misunderstand what technically is class A office and they just think it's really shiny. Technically class A office has to be a property that is at least a hundred thousand square feet. So when I see some people call the like these little office cottages that are brand new, they have very high end finishes. They're well appointed. And they call them a class A office. I'm like, no, it's not. <laughs> so mm-hmm. just because it's shiny and pretty doesn't mean it's class A. There's uh BOMA standards. I forgot what BOMA even stands for, but they're the ones that define the class, the technical classes of A, B, C class, etc. Right. Um, anyway, the generally class A is the newest high rise type thing, downtown core area. Uh, but at least a hundred thousand square feet, at least a hundred thousand yeah. square feet. Yeah. Uh, the next item we, we touched on earlier was the exclusive and restrictions. Uh, if you're a grocer, I think I've read enough grocery leases to have it where they say you're not allowed to sell these types of things. You can't have people who sell food for offsite consumption that are, you know, within a certain footprint or, you know, if it's going to have any way that's going to actually compete with them. Same thing with dollar stores, a lot of restaurants, I mean, can't have the same type of cuisine uh, type thing. There was a, a deal that didn't pan out because there was a restaurant in the center that sold Southern style food and we couldn't put a po' boy place in there because Mm -hmm. it was just similar enough to, even though they weren't going to be in the same hours of operation type of thing. It's just one of those things that uh, to protect them, a lot of beauty related, like you can't have more than one lash place or sure whatever so most tenants if they can they want to be the only one of them in that center uh i know sometimes uh groceries will have limits on certain types of users like gyms because the the 
the parking needs that they're afraid they might take from their parking or whatever. So it's just one of those things to include if possible to the best of your ability. Yeah. One of the things that I just made me think of as far as restrictions that I've heard is oftentimes where there was sort of a national quick service restaurant. And if they go out and don't succeed, you can't put another, there's a restricted time for before before you can put another, another one in there. That's another one in there. Yeah. Uh, you know, one of the more important items on a letter of intent for us as agents that are making our living off of, you know, we eat what we kill, the commission. Right. All, you know, I know for some residential people, it's like, oh, they, they they can't fathom the thought of their client seeing what their commission is in the letter of intent or the offer rather. That It's everyday common practice for us to have the commission uh in the document that we use to negotiate the lease. So because it will be memorialized in the lease itself. Sometimes not all, but at least this is the way to to track it on paper if it's not in the lease. Yeah. And this is something where there's, you know, from my experience in it, there's oftentimes a big difference between a national credit tenant and a yeah. mom and pop operation as to how those leases get paid out. Yeah, I mean, it's always lovely if you can get paid entirely up front on a five-year deal versus getting paid annually. Right. Um, I'm not going to do a deal if they're going to try to pay me monthly. <laughs> no, I'm not either. But, you know, on the, the smaller mom and pop side things, it's pretty common to get paid annually. Yeah. Um, and, of course, their justification is like, why do I pay you for something if the tenant is failed and they've moved out of the space it's right like continue to pay are you going to pay me back I'm like of course not you know, <laughs> right but that's why but on the national credit tenant outside things people are a lot more confident that those folks are going to be if you sign something with cbs they will probably be okay yeah yeah um generally i found that like if you're going to get it up front you're probably only going to get a one and done maybe you might get it on renewals just that's one of those things you negotiate in the letter of intent. Right. So agents build in your commission, how you, how you want or the best you can to get the deal done. Don't let it get in the way of the, getting the deal done, but right. cover yourself basically. Make it worth your while. Yeah. Yeah. That going into that uh, guarantee kind of feeds into how that commission verbiage can be filled out in that letter of intent. You know, Personal guarantee, virtually every mom and pop is going to be required of that. Right. Um, In Salido. Yeah, the corporate guarantee, I think the only way, like probably most common way you're going to see a corporate guarantee on a lease is if they're building the suit. Because why else would they um, commit their their the business right. guarantee unless it's going to be a major capital outlay for the landlord? to build a, a property uh, specifically for them. Um, I mean, I personally wouldn't build a CVS if CVS didn't guarantee, guarantee that they're <laughs> that type of thing. Right. Sure. Yeah. Let me see what we got left here. Uh, right of first refusal. Oh no, I'm going to skip some uh, expansion relocation clause. I think I've seen this more in the office arena, the office tower arena. Sure. Because if you got a tenant that could be the difference in having like a whole floor leased out to one tenant, right? 
landlord doesn't want you know this 1200 square foot or five whatever the smaller tenant getting in the way of having a chunk of their building leased up that could otherwise be vacant and that tenants in the way of having a higher occupancy so what i've seen a lot in kind of in those clauses but um negotiate on the front end is basically saying hey if we need to relocate you you know we'll do it at our expense and it'll be you know similar space type of thing um sometimes you might be a business that says hey we are going to be expecting to grow in the future and we want to expand so that expansion can be you know done uh as part of that too can you really can you relocate a tenant in the building to accommodate our expansion mr landlord or mrs right. landlord or you know that's something that can be uh also done the the protect yourself for the expansion with a first right of refusal. Uh, I think that's pretty commonplace to see in most of the multi-tenant retail spaces, you know, say, Hey, if that ever becomes available next door to me, I'd like to have the first shot at leasing it. Or if there's someone who comes along, I want, you know, I might not want to make a move unless someone else comes along and I, I need to out of necessity at that point. I don't know. Have you seen, some things like that with some of the properties you handle? Well, the thing it makes me think of is, you know, we're sort of going in the opposite direction right now with kind of the downsizing, but early on with a lot of sort of tech companies and things like that, that were scaling up really quickly. Um, and that was one of the things sort of going back to the, the um, shared spaces and things they might be interested in those kinds of spaces because it gave them that scalability that was pretty simple. And so, you know, a lot of what we've seen over the last little while, shorter terms on leases with greater flexibility flexibility to go up and go down so i think that you know depending on if a business is starting out and it ends up being incredibly successful more so than maybe they're going to want to take up more space and so to have that right. that as a possibility early on and i and in that i've worked on some things where we looked at some space where it wasn't not going to say it was necessarily dead space, but the people were looking at paying a lower price per square foot for a significantly larger space than they needed starting out with because if they were sort of going in there, which we're saying like that other space was not necessarily going to be of use, right? but the, the, the owner of the building was willing to give them a little lead time. So they're paying, getting twice as much space for the same price as like half the space for a couple of years to see if they could grow into it. And then at that point in time, they can renegotiate, but it wasn't space that they could, they could easily rent out to a different user. Yeah. That could be a different motivation. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I think the last item we have here is sublease provisions. I think it's probably the most common practice to see some sort of verbiage in there about, yeah, you can sublease, but, you have to get a landlord approval sure and it's gonna have to be a use and user that's gonna be acceptable not uh that have to be acceptable for the space and not break any of the exclusions or uh any of the other terms of the lease basically you just got uh, tongue-tied <laughs> 
sublease ain't going to happen unless the landlord approves it. Type and of oftentimes, even if it does happen, the original tenant is still the one that's responsible right. for everything, even if things might be set up to go directly with the landlord. Right. Uh, and that's one of the things sometimes you see that, that they can effectively take over that responsibility as the subletter. But most of the times what I've seen is that the original person that signed the lease has the obligation until that lease expires and a new one is sort of drafted up if that tenant ends up yeah. staying in place. Especially if it's got a decent amount of term left on it. I mean, right. if it's short time, might be able to just renegotiate. Yeah, the and, deal. That might, and that might be one of the things that's also in that LOI, right? Yeah. So if it's within the last six months or the last 12 months, whatever, of the lease and the subletting things, then that reminded me of uh cancellation clause that this one uh, national tenant, uh, I worked with a national broker and being the local boots on the ground and this particular user, they like to have in every single lease was a cancellation clause where they would pay so many, such amount of rent and then a fee that were like unamortized costs. Like if there was a build out that they didn't have paid back over that term, uh, that would have to be paid by the tenant at the cancellation and uh, any commissions that was on the term thereafter. Right. So not all landlords are going to bite on that, but you know, if you can, but that, was <laughs> that was basically something that allowed them to exit the lease if, right. if things weren't working out the way. That yeah, they, I think it even had like a time frame of like you had to exercise that ability to terminate by a certain date, so it wasn't completely open ended. But yeah, actually, so that the same person that I was talking about that that's you know was wanted to put in a contingency for this grocery store it opened. Um, he had something like that that was basically said in the first. 18 months of the lease if he decided that this was not working out he had the ability to get out of the lease right yeah. yeah it's it's you know it's a good provision to put in there there's gonna that are not interested in it. yeah i'm saying if you can get it that's not always uh something uh because it might come across as oh you're planning to fail <laughs> right exactly. so i think it's an easier sell if it's a higher grade of tenant. Uh, whereas if it's a mom pop, new business, new venture, never done it before, I can almost book it that the landlord is like not interested in any of this type of thing. Right. So I think that puts us at a good place to wrap up on the, all, all right. the, the letter of intent negotiation points. Sounds good. Thank you.